Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we are live for an hour each weekday afternoon and we take your phone calls. If you have questions about the Bible or about the Christian faith, you can call in during this hour and you can ask any question you'd like. We'll talk about it. If you have a different viewpoint from the host and want to call in and discuss that, that's fine too. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. As many of you know, I'm uh, broadcasting from uh, Honolulu this week. I'm teaching for Youth with a Mission in the Manoa Valley. I know we have listeners in Honolulu. And uh, if you're interested, uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night, I'm speaking at the community meeting here at the YWAM base uh, that's open to the public. If you'd like information about that, maybe you know where the YWAM base is. Uh, meeting starts at, I think, uh, 6.30. The meeting starts at 6.30, and, uh, and you can just show up. Or if you don't know where YWAM is, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and uh, go to the Announcements tab, and you'll find the information about where to go. Uh, that's tomorrow night in uh, in Honolulu, basically. So uh, look forward to seeing some of you there if you can make it. Now, our lines are full, so I'm going to go directly to our callers and talk, first of all, to Les, uh, or Les from Sacramento, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path, Les. Thanks for calling. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. How you doing today? Hey, thank you again for all your... Uh goodness that you have out there to serve us and with the good information about the Bible and, and Jesus Christ. I was talking to you yesterday, and we had, I guess, a bad connection. I hope we have a good one today. But I didn't get a chance to talk to you and hear what your comment was. And it's been bothering me for a long time, so that's the reason why I wanted to ask you, is what happened throughout all the centuries and years uh, you know, with with the, all the different denominations and everything. And then the other question is, I, I, it's kind of hard to ask you that way, but the Lord is looking down on all of us to see what we're doing and see how we're, you know, practicing our faith and so on. Would he approve of all of this, of all the different denominations that have been created? I don't think he would, but I wanted to know your opinion. Well, um, yeah, there were quite a few calls yesterday about denominations, and I, I, it seems to me like uh, I had more than an opportunity to, uh, to comment on that. Um, when you say what happened with all the denominations, do you mean where did they come from? Yeah, I mean, how were they all created, you know, because when, okay. you know, when Christ was here, there was just the one, the one belief in him and, and, right. to, and to follow well, him. Well, in the so early on, church, and, yeah. In the early church, there were uh, the apostles were basically in Jerusalem the only central authority over the churches everywhere in the world, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. and the the apostles by this time, many of them had been killed, some of them were dispersed, and there was no longer a central authority over the churches. So every church was pretty much autonomous, but they all were one church. Uh, as they had been before. I mean, the church is just one body of Christ. Everyone who's part of the body of Christ is part of the same church, no matter what part of the world they're in. They didn't have uh, denominations per se, but they did have regional churches that developed their own traditions and their own uh, <clears throat> ways of doing things. They're, they're in the West, 
uh, the church in Rome became very prominent and eventually evolved into what we call the Roman Catholic Church. Um, in the eastern part of Europe, there were other customs, although they were connected to the Roman Catholic until about the 11th century, and then they became more independent. They had different practices in some cases than the Roman Church, and we have what we call the Eastern Orthodox Church coming from there. Um, there was all along uh, independent churches in the Far East, in places like Syria and further east, even India, there were churches that had no connection to the Western church at all. There were the Coptic churches in Africa. Now, these churches were not different denominations per se. They were all just part of the body of Christ. But because of their regional separation and because they developed over the centuries without, you know, close contact with each other necessarily, um, you know, they, they all developed their own traditions. Now, those of us in Western Christianity usually follow the trend uh, of the church in the West in that uh, for a long time, the church in the West was under the Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman bishop, which is called the popes. In you know, the early 1500s, Luther, a Catholic uh, monk, actually broke away from the Catholic church over certain differences of interpretation of scripture and uh, and the Re the reformation began now the reformation began around the same time in several places in switzerland zwingli was leading a reformation at the same time that luther was leading one in germany and uh, you know Ref reformation had been kind of coming about for over a century people like wickliffe and tyndale and even 100 years before luther john huss uh, these guys were saying many of the same things that became the beliefs of the Reformation. So it's just something that kind of evolved. Uh, there, it came to a head when the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated Luther. And then, of course, his movement in the West was a, we could say, a rival denomination to the Roman Catholic denomination. Once that happened, uh, other people began to break off and form their own movements. Uh, and, you know, there are thousands of denominations. I can't tell you the history of each one of them. It would take much too long, and I don't know the history of each one of them. But, for example, the Presbyterian denomination grew out of um, a movement in Geneva under John Calvin in the second generation of the Reformation. The Methodist movement grew out of the work of uh, John Wesley, uh, who was an Anglican. And uh, he, he started a, a bunch of uh, discipleship communities called uh, Methodist societies. And they eventually, in a later time after his death, became a denomination called Methodism. Uh, the Church of England had been under the Pope, but until the time of, uh, of uh, Henry VIII, uh, who broke away from the Pope and declared that the Church of England was now under the King of England, uh, you know, they, they're now called Anglo-Catholic or Anglican. Uh, they differ from the Catholics largely in that they don't, uh, they don't accept the Pope, but they, in many other respects, they're the same. Uh, and many, many denominations broke off from others. Now, you asked, what's God's opinion about this? Well, most people think that God's in favor of their denomination and not of the others. I think God's just not in favor of a denominational spirit at all. I think that God wants all Christians to love one another and to be united, but that doesn't mean they have to all agree with each other. Uh, there's nothing wrong with seeing the Bible in the way, uh, you know, that the Methodists see it or the way the Presbyterians see it or the way the Baptists see it or the way the Pentecostals see it. When I say there's nothing wrong with it, I'm not saying it's all right, that they all see things right. I'm just saying that God doesn't object to Christians 
seeing the Bible the way they see it, as long as they're followers of Christ. And therefore, there's no reason to condemn, if you're in one denomination, people of another denomination. And there's certainly no reason to believe that your denomination is the only one or even the best one. The truth is that I don't think there should be denominations, but since there are, uh, people find fellowship wherever they find it. And uh, usually they find fellowship with people that they see things similarly to. And therefore, the denominational system kind of perpetuates itself that way. I believe that God would rather have there be no denominations. Uh, but if there's going to be denominations, I think God's looking at the heart of the people. Uh, you could be, for example, in a Baptist church, but not identify yourself as a Baptist. You might agree with Baptist theology, but you might also see yourself as one body with all other Christians who are not Baptists. And that's the way I think, I think that's the way God wants us to see it if we're in denominational churches at all. Now, some people, because they're against denominations, start new movements. Uh, the Church of Christ was started that way. The Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, started that way. Lots of groups break off. Some of them are cults, and some are true Christian evangelical movements. But even though they, they break off because they're against denominationalism, some these groups usually become denominations themselves. And so it's really, it's really hard in this age to not have groups <clears throat> forming, excuse me, around common beliefs that they have about certain issues. But uh, the important thing is not that we all share the same beliefs, and that would be something very hard to arrange for without a divine miracle. Um, we, you know, we don't have to have all the same beliefs about everything, but we have to have the same spirit and the same Father and the same Lord, and uh, we're all of one body. And as long as we see it that way and act that way, I don't think God's offended by the fact that we attend a church that may have a denominational name. That's the short answer to your question. I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, Joel from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I think I've got a, a really good question for you. Uh, they talked about Jesus saying, good teacher, and he said, there is only one that's good, and you can put more meat on that, but I sort of think that uh, no human being, even if you're a biblical scholar, I think Origen was somebody that really knew the Bible inside out and backwards, and he was going to teach some women, and so he didn't want to be um, looked down on for some of his thoughts, so he castrated himself. And that's just an example of many biblical scholars who... They know the Bible inside out, and they can say what the Bible says, but we're supposed to be taught by the Holy Spirit, and I don't know any man that gets it right. You know, I'm a therapist, and, you know, I don't know any therapists that get it right or yeah. biblical scholars. or. Well, Joel, do you have, do you have a question? How, how, yeah, the question is, how do you know if you're following the Holy Spirit? He's supposed to well, you know that it. you're following the Holy Spirit if you have the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in the life of the believer. Paul says that fruit is love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness and so forth. Is If the Holy Spirit is generating, as it were, the character and the life of Christ in you, then that's the evidence that you are uh, a follower of Christ and, and, and led by the Holy Spirit. Um the, if you mean, how do you know if you're led by the Holy Spirit in terms of 
you know, uh, the, the, your choice of a career or your choice of a wife or a husband or something like that, uh, that's a little more complicated. Uh, it's not always the easiest thing to know what God is saying, but God will speak and guide us uh, either consciously or sometimes unconsciously in those kinds of decisions. But our concern primarily should be that we are, uh, you know, like Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us is that which creates the life of Christ and the the uh, character of Christ in us. So that's, that's how we know uh, that we are led by the Spirit. I appreciate your call. Let's talk to Brenda from Garden Grove, California. Brenda, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Steve. Aloha. Hi. Um, Aloha. I was calling because um, I was curious about uh, um, the fact, if my understanding is correct, that Enoch and Elisha were two that were taken up to God without dying. And Mm. also my understanding is that, you know, we're all sinful. um, And I'm curious of how that is possible with, uh, with, with Christ Jesus not dying yet, and they were with sin, and, and, you know, no one can be with God who has sin. Uh-huh. Well, so if, if all are sinners and the wages of sin is death, why were Enoch and Elijah permitted to go to heaven without dying? Why, why, why didn't they have to pay the wages of sin or receive the wages uh-huh. of sin? Um, you know, the question would apply also to those who are alive at the time that Christ comes who will not taste death. You know, Paul said we shall not all sleep, that is, we won't all die, but we'll all be changed. And when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will be will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds, apparently not dying. So it would appear that there's going to be a generation of Christians living at the time that Jesus comes back that won't die also, and, and the question would apply to them as well. Now, uh, we could say, well, um, Christians, you know, God can can take them to heaven without them dying if he wants to because he's forgiven them in Christ. They have eternal life. And therefore, although the wages of sin is death, uh, God can forgive sin and he can he can spare them those wages if he wishes and apparently will do so with a generation of Christians at the end. Now, I would say whatever may be said about that can also be said about Enoch and Elijah, if God wishes. I mean, I believe God can forgive sin and does forgive sin. And we're not actually told in the Bible that Elijah didn't die. We're told that he was caught up in a, a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. But we're not told that, that this didn't kill him. Uh, it is assumed that he didn't die, and it may be a correct assumption. We, we are specifically told that Enoch did not see death. And in that respect, he's probably in a category similar to the Christians who won't see death when Jesus comes back. Um, However, they are exceptions, to be sure. Even most forgiven Christians are going to die and do die. And why God makes a distinction between someone like Enoch, whom he apparently forgave of his sins and therefore, you know, canceled that uh, death penalty, as it were, uh, he was absolved. He was acquitted and, uh, you know, granted amnesty. Uh, I don't. Though God forgives all of us who repent and come to Christ, and other people in the Old Testament who turn to God, like David, or Abraham, whom God accounted righteous by his faith, 
Abram still had to die, and so did David. And I don't know why God made the exceptions he did. We're not given enough information to know that. So uh, I wish I could help you there, but we don't have the information why God made the exception in their case. But I have to assume that if they did not die, it was because uh, they were absolved from the penalty uh, of sin, as we all are. But we're not all, uh, we're not all freed from our mortality in the, in the process. We have eternal life now, those of us who are followers of Christ. We have eternal life, and our bodies will die uh, because the bodies are mortal. But, uh, but we will live on. Jesus said, whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. So even though we physically die, in the sense that really counts, because we're in Christ, we won't. And I suppose that that is uh, the same principle by which God made it, the exception of Enoch and possibly of Elijah also. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your answer. Yeah, I don't know if I have the right answer because we're not told, but that's uh, those are my thoughts. Uh-huh. Well, right. that was my thought, and I, and I value your, your wisdom, and uh, thank you very much. All right, Brenda. Thanks for your call. God bless you. Uh, Don from Snohomish, Washington, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. I have two quick questions. The first is, where have all the demons gone? And my second question is, why don't I personally operate in the power and the authority of the first century apostles and disciples? Okay, as far as where the uh, demons have gone, I don't think they're gone. I think they're around. Uh, There were demon-possessed people in the Old Testament. There were demon-possessed people when Jesus was here. There were demon-possessed people that the apostles encountered in their travels. And there's demon-possessed people that modern Christians encounter from time to time. Uh, There's many stories from missionaries of encountering demon-possessed people, and you don't even have to go away. I've encountered demon-possessed people in my life here in the United States. So... Um, I don't think they've necessarily gone anywhere. It may be that they appear to be gone because we don't recognize them anymore, because we now live in an age, and it's a, it's, it's a unique development because all other cultures you know, have recognized demons throughout history. But our culture has, be, has embraced something called naturalism as a mindset, which basically denies the supernatural. And it's from that standpoint that most scientists operate so that uh, the whole mindset has infiltrated the helping sciences, especially of the mental field, so that when people are demon-possessed today, they would almost certainly be mistaken for people who, whom we would give a, uh, a mental health diagnosis to. We might call them paranoid schizophrenics or something like that. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who is called a paranoid schizophrenic is necessarily demon-possessed. What I'm saying is... Everyone who is demon-possessed would be given some kind of a diagnosis like that today, which would mask their real problem. And uh, so it's not that the demons have gone anywhere. It's that we have uh, lost our ability to recognize our activity because we redefine it in medical terms usually. Um, But if you go to many countries, say, go to India or China or go tribal Africa or tribal you know, Amazon or something, you're, you're not going to find people who have any problem recognizing demon possession. Uh, it's only our culture that basically has come to uh, so, to not recognize it. Now, you Steve, so how, how would I recognize demon possession today, then? 
how would I see that? Well, uh, if you if you encountered it, uh, you might or might not recognize it because I mean, there's times when it's not obvious whether the person's problem is demonic. For example, uh, in the Bible, demon possession is distinguished from epilepsy. The epilepsy is mentioned as a separate condition that is not mm-hmm. the same as demon possession. But sometimes demon possession throws people into fits that might resemble uh, a grand mal seizure. Uh, so if you saw someone with a grand mal seizure, you wouldn't necessarily immediately know, is this epilepsy or is this is this a, a, a case of demon possession? Well, uh I'm saying I don't I don't know I'm not saying there's a way that the Bible tells us that we'd always know. I would say that if there are if it is demon possession, usually there are other factors involved too. The way that we would certainly not miss demon possession is if a person has supernatural clairvoyant abilities or supernatural strength, as in some cases mm-hmm. they do in the Bible. If a person um, you know. Uh, knows things that they couldn't possibly know, uh, and uh, and and they, or if they're they're tormented in a way where the demons speak out of them. Sometimes demons speak in other languages that the person himself doesn't know. I mean, there's certain ways that you know if you encountered it, you'd say, well, that doesn't yield easily to a naturalistic explanation. That almost certainly is a case of demon possession. Now, other times, people in the Bible who had demons didn't have those particular unmistakable symptoms. Sometimes they were just bent over and couldn't stand upright, or they were uh, blind and dumb until the demon was cast out. There are demons do different things to different people, and some of them are not easily distinguished from medical conditions, and that's why in many people's mind we, we give a medical diagnosis first off. But there are some things that would be entirely resistant to medical diagnoses and medical treatment, which might be demonic, in which case uh, casting a demon out might be the answer. Uh, I, I would say it would take a book-length like a book length treatment to give you all the ways that a person might recognize demon possession. And there are a lot of books out that talk about that. I couldn't give all that here, but I've only given you a few pointers. But you had another okay. question I wanted to get to before we run out of time in this segment because my lines are full and I want to keep moving on. But you said, why is it that you don't have the power uh, of God working in your life like the apostles did. Um, I'm going in the, to... In the sense of casting out demons, healing... Yeah. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to speculate that it may have a lot to do with not being an apostle. You know, in, in the biblical times, <clears throat> most of the miraculous things done in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, were done by the apostles. Not all of them. There are people who are not apostles who did miraculous things, like Stephen and Philip. But in the book of Acts, you don't read of people working miracles unless they were Stephen or Philip or one of the apostles. You don't really read of uh, the ordinary Christian usually doing that. Um, I guess we could say Ananias in Damascus worked a miracle by praying for Saul and his eyes were open that had been blind. But there's, generally speaking, it's an apostolic thing. But God can give supernatural gifts to anybody, whether they're an apostle or not, but they don't all have miraculous gifts. When Paul talked about the gifts of the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 12, he indicated that every Christian has a gift of the Spirit. But when he listed them, a lot of them are not miraculous. He listed things like a gift of helps or service, a gift of giving, a gift of encouraging, a gift of leading, a gift of teaching. Now, when people have these gifts, they're not obviously supernatural necessarily, but they are, they are the spirits working through them. Other people have gifts like working of miracles, 
or speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues or prophesying. These are listed as separate gifts too. So, I mean, if you don't work miracles, it may be that the gift of miracles is not your gift. Steve, so you don't think it's normative then that every Christian should operate in in healings and miracles? Is that, is well, that what we you're don't, saying? We don't, right. We don't find that as normative in the New Testament, so I don't know why it would be normative now. Uh, in, if you read the book of Acts, we read that on the first day after you know Pentecost, there were 3,000 converts. What did those 3,000 Christians do? They sat daily under the apostles' teaching and broke bread together and prayed and fellowship together regularly. And it says, and the apostles did signs and wonders and preached the gospel publicly. So there were some people set aside to preach the gospel, and the Lord confirmed their word with signs following, as it says in the last verse of, the, of Mark 16. So the apostles and a few other people who were public preachers did work some miracles. Uh, they didn't work all the miracles they would like to work. Paul, for example, worked some tremendous miracles, but there were miracles he couldn't work. For example, he couldn't heal Trophimus, his partner in ministry. He left him sick in Miletus. He apparently couldn't heal Timothy. Timothy had uh, chronic stomach problems, and Paul told him, well, I guess taking some wine for that might help. He didn't, didn't indicate he could heal him. Paul himself had something he called an infirmity of the flesh, which he also called a thorn in the flesh. And he said that he prayed three times it would go away, and it didn't. Jesus said, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So even Paul, who raised the dead and healed all kinds of sicknesses, was apparently not able to heal many other people that were close to him. So uh, God works miracles when he wants to work miracles. God hasn't just given the church the ability to run around and do supernatural things whenever they want to do them. But some people in the church are used, apparently more than others, in that as their gifting. And the apostles were particularly, they stood out in the book of Acts. You don't find anywhere in the Bible that suggests that all the Christians were working miracles. That's just an imaginary scenario that some Pentecostals and Charismatics have dreamed up. It's not in the Bible. Listen, I need to take a break. You're listening to The Narrow Path. We're taking a half hour, I mean, a, a half a minute break. We'll be back for another half hour to be taking your calls. The book of Hebrews tells us, do not forget to do good and to share with others. So let's all do good and share the narrow path with Steve Gregg with family and friends. When the show is over today, tell one and all to go to thenarrowpath.com where they can study, learn, and enjoy with free topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and archives of all the Narrow Path radio shows. And be sure to tell them to tune into the show right here on the radio. Share listener-supported The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Share and do good. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. And we have another half hour together live taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, uh, you can call in and we'll talk to you about them. If you have a difference of opinion with the host, you can call in and we'll talk about that as well. The number to call is 844-484-5737. I want to uh, welcome our new listeners just today. Uh, listening in northern Washington and in Vancouver, Canada, on KARI 550. 
Uh, we've just, I think today is our first day on the air with this particular station, and therefore we've got some new audience up in that, that part of the, uh, the northern, uh, the northwestern corner of the United States and uh, the southwestern corner of Canada. Uh, we welcome you as listeners. We hope you'll enjoy the program and that you'll call in if you have questions as well. That's the listeners on KARI 550 in uh, northern Washington area and Vancouver. Um, we Our lines are full at the moment, so if you call right now, you'll get a busy signal. But uh, if you keep the number on hand and call at various times during the program, you'll find lines are open. The number is 844 484 And uh, I just want our listeners in Southern California to know that, you know, we do have our Thursday morning Bible study at Panera Bread every every Thursday at 6.30 in the morning. And many of you know I'm, I'm broadcasting from Hawaii, so I won't be teaching there, but there, the meeting still will be there. My friend Tommy, who's a, a better teacher than I am, and people enjoy him more than they enjoy me, he always fills in for me when I'm not there, and he'll be there tomorrow. So uh, don't, uh, don't stay away because I'm out of town. Uh, tomorrow morning, Panera Bread in Temecula at 6.30. Our studies in the life of Christ continue uh, and, and Tommy Degeneff will be teaching them, who is a very good teacher and very trusted friend of mine. Let's talk to Tori from Jacksonville, Florida. Tori, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, Steve. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Can you hear me? Yes, but please talk. Go ahead. Okay. Um, hold up. I'm having a hard time hearing. Hello? Yes, we're having a hard time hearing you, too, but largely because you're not talking. Go ahead and ask your question. Okay. I'm very sorry. Um, really quick, I heard on a Facebook uh, Q&A that just recently got to, to YouTube that you would like to do a daily teaching. I would love to, to hear that happen and a different reteaching of a, a, a counterculture, radically different counterculture. I would love to hear an up-to-date teaching on that. Um, the question is, how do you harmonize where Paul, at the end of this uh, rant, basically says, imitate me, where he's talking about, I wish I was a king, but I'm not. And then he goes into this rant of how we're the scum of the earth and we're beef and imitate me. And then how do you harmonize that with, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel? Well, uh, you're talking about 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul's talk, rebuking the Corinthians because they're seeking a life of luxury and and, uh, you know, acceptance with the community. And he says, you're living as kings, but without me. He's kind of, it's a bit of a hyperbole saying you're living as kings because they weren't quite really living like kings, but they were seeking the luxury and the comforts uh, of, of the world. And he's saying, well, I, he says, I wish you were kings because then I'd be reigning with you too. He means this will happen when Jesus comes back, and, and when the time comes that you're reigning as kings, I will be as well. But in the meantime, I'm, like the apostles uh, in general, treated as this offscouring of the world. We're hated and we're despised and so forth. And he says, you should imitate me. Now, you say, how could a person imitate Paul and still uh, take responsibility for his family? Uh, since a person who doesn't take care of his family is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Well, Different people have different financial responsibilities. There are people like Paul who don't have families. There are people who are married 
who have wives to take care of, and there's people who have children to take care of, and some people have to take care of their parents, uh, or, or some grandparents have to take care of their grandkids. I mean, there's a lot of people who are in different states of life than Paul was, and therefore have different responsibilities. Uh, God has uh, put everyone in an individualized situation, and each situation has its own responsibilities attached to it. So, uh, you know, Paul didn't have a family to raise. He could he could be in full-time ministry and work full-time and live on the road and travel most of the time and so forth. Not everyone can do that. Uh, on the other hand, you could have his attitude. What he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 was, having food and clothing, we should with these be content. Now, we can certainly have the same contentment Paul had, that whatever we have, we're content with it, and we're not seeking more. We're, we're not seeing ourselves as entitled or, or to be privileged or to be seeking you know, the things that the world offers to those who seek the things of the world. We're seeking another kingdom. We're, we're, we're sons of the king, but the king is at war, and we're in the foxholes. So we don't really have lives of luxury that we can guarantee ourselves. Although God does have some of his kids in pretty comfortable circumstances. And if that's what God has you in, fine. But the issue here is uh, when Paul says whoever doesn't support his uh, family, he's worse than an infidel, he's denied the faith. He's actually referring to people who don't support their aged widowed mothers. Um, he's not really referring there in the context to, to raising children, but he'd probably say the same thing about taking care of your children. Some people have to take care of their parents. Some people have to take care of their children. Some people have to take care of their grandchildren. So if that's, if that's the responsibility you have, then do so. However, taking care of your family doesn't mean that you and your family have to live in luxury. It would be, I think, ideal if you and your wife and your kids have all that they need, but we're still content to, to, uh, to live modestly, as modestly as, as possible, and to give much to, you know, the needs of others. Now, I raised five kids, and I and most of that time I was quite poor. Um, but we never lacked anything. We, we lived in very modest accommodations. We didn't have new clothes usually. Usually had to shop at thrift stores. Didn't eat out much, didn't have a lot of gadgets, didn't have a lot of money, never drove a new car. Uh, we always bought old cars because, well, that's just the way our circumstances were, but but even if someone had given me a million dollars, I wouldn't have changed things up very much because we're quite content having the things we need. And if I had a lot of extra, I would simply want to give it to people who didn't have enough. I mean, I had enough, but not everyone does. And so I think the Christian attitude should be like Paul's. I, I can live as modestly as, as possible, and then I, I can help others out. Paul not only was in the ministry full-time, but he also worked as a tent maker, and he supported not only himself, but also his team that traveled with him. Uh, so you can have that attitude, even if you're not in Paul's circumstances. But to be an imitator of Paul <clears throat> doesn't mean that you have to be a Jew uh, and that you have to be traveling by ship around the Mediterranean uh, and that you have to wear sandals and so forth and grow your beard. Uh, it, it means that you have the same attitude he had, and you can have that even if your circumstances of life are very different than his. And, and you still, 
yeah, you still must, uh, you know, fulfill all your obligations. I appreciate your call. Apparently we have a bad connection because uh, I don't know how much of that you heard, but you respond as if you didn't hear much. Uh, it could be a bad connection. I don't know. Let's talk to uh, Tom from San Diego, California. Tom, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Tom. Okay, going once, going twice. Tom, you're not there? Bye now. Okay, let's talk to Randy from Denver, Colorado. By the way, uh, we do have a line open now. If you tried to call earlier and found the lines full, we have a few lines open if you'd like to call. The number is 844-484-5737. Randy, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello, Steve, right? Hi. Yes. I wanted to mention something about the National Day of Prayer tomorrow. I wanted to know what you think. Is this something that we should do? I mean, we're supposed to pray every day. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. And then the other thing that bothers me is how many churches don't do anything for National Day of Prayer. They don't even acknowledge it. A lot of churches don't even know that it exists. How do you how do you explain that? Well, um, the, the National Day of Prayer, of course, is, is something that was not decided by the churches, but was decided by... Um, who was it who first did that? Was it Washington? Or is some early... Truman. Truman. Oh, was it Truman? Is that late? Okay, I, I knew yeah. that. Uh, I guess what Washington wanted us to do Thanksgiving, as I recall. Then but, Reagan made it the first Thursday of May. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Harry Truman doesn't really make the rules for the church, and therefore some churches may just decide that it's not something that they're bound to to observe. However, I think that you can never have too much prayer. Uh, Christians, generally speaking, if they're deficient in any area, it's often in prayer. And so for there to be a day where people are encouraged to pray uh, and and churches maybe make announcements about that or have special prayer meetings on those days, it can't hurt. Uh, it can't hurt. Now, of course, it's it's the prayers of the Christians that the Bible says will be effectual. The fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Most people in the United States are not Christians, and therefore a national day of prayer may involve the prayers of people who don't even serve God. Uh, they may they may feel obligated to do something because the government recommends it. But I, as far as I'm concerned, I really believe the churches ought to have prayer as more of a focus of their community life, that is corporate prayer. And I think most individual Christians should be praying more as individuals. But a national day of prayer doesn't have any particular... Um, uh, you know, authority upon the church, though there's certainly nothing wrong with Christians uh, saying, okay, if, if our nation has said this is a day of prayer, then our church and other churches can take advantage of that and know that we're praying along with many other people nationwide. Um, I don't have any, I don't have any re real well thought out ideas about the National Day of Prayer. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I live in the Denver area and every year the capital about, oh, maybe seven, eight years ago, it was a huge turnout. Every year it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think my understanding is that Obama did not sanction it or something or other, but or that he tried to get rid of it. I'm not sure. But uh, every year it gets less and less, and I'm wondering 
just if it's going to hang on. And I'm talking about the Capitol. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know anything about that. I don't know what Obama did. I don't know uh, what's going on in state capitals, generally speaking. I guess I would have to say that the, the nation has gone through a long period uh, of, of, of compromise in terms of uh, Christian influence and, and Christian zeal in the churches. And I, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's one of the signs of it. I guess I just wanted to mention it on the radio okay. and wonder why so many churches don't even know it exists. That's yeah. I, I don't know how anybody could not know that if they're a Christian, but anyway. yeah, I can't I can't answer for the churches about <laughs> okay. that. Um, all right, I appreciate your call though and your concern, Randy. Uh, let's talk to uh, Bill from Roseville, California. Bill, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. I appreciate your uh, radio program. Thank you. My question has to do with uh, Ezekiel thirty-six. It's midway. And I don't remember the exact verses. I don't have it in front of me, but it has to do with God saying that I will, it'll be as if I've sprinkled water on you and take out your stony hearts of sin and give yep. you new hearts of love, and I will make you obey my every command. Could you please talk about that and your explanation of free will, especially leading to when we're in heaven, will we lose free will? Uh, okay. Sure, I will. And uh, there's some noise in the background. Do is it okay if we uh, hang up and I just answer you over the air? Yes, thank you, Steve. Okay, Bill, thanks for your call. Um, let me read the whole passage. The verses you're talking about are verse 25 and 26. But he's talking about Israel coming back from the captivity in Babylon. And in verse 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, he's saying that he's going to restore the, the Jewish people from the captivity in Babylon. And there are two things he's going to do. He mentions them both here, and he mentions them both in other places too, like the next chapter, chapter 37 in the, in the vision of the dry bones, which is also about restoring them from Babylon. In both places, he says he's going to re bring them back to their land. He's going to take them from all the nations where they'd been scattered, and they'd been scattered into many nations by the Babylonians. And he's going to bring them back to their own land. He did that. Uh, he did that with the remnant of his people. Most of the Jews didn't want to go back, so he didn't bring them. But he took the ones that wanted to and brought them back to their land. The nation was reestablished under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. Later, Ezra and Nehemiah had a role in helping to, to encourage that project. Of course, the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and things got underway again after the 70-year captivity in Babylon. Now, this prediction is that he would do that and then that he would do something to their hearts as well. Here he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to change your you know, stony heart out for a, heart, a soft heart of flesh and, uh, and make it so that you walk in my ways. Now, you're asking how this has uh, impact on free will. If God's going to make people walk in his ways, is that going to be against their will? No, God, God only does that for people who want it. That's why only the remnant were made to come back. 
the majority of the people in Babylon apparently didn't have the heart for God that the remnant had and that everybody should have. And he doesn't force anyone who doesn't want to. He doesn't force them to return. The remnant came back, and they did have something of a new heart and so forth. But I think the ultimate fulfillment of this, his putting his spirit in them, uh, awaited a time later when the Messiah came and he poured out his spirit on the remnant in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I believe that both of these things are part of his restoration of the remnant of his people. The remnant of his people came back from Babylon in beginning in 539 B.C., but much later, when the Messiah came and, and, and left, he poured out his spirit upon them. And that was also predicted. He said, I'll put my spirit in you. And what the spirit does is he changes our hearts. When you're born again, you get a new heart, as it were, not, not the blood pump in your chest. This is a metaphorical heart. Your, your inward disposition changes. The Holy Spirit makes a new creation out of you uh, so that you, you now have an inward impulse to follow God, to follow Christ. But God doesn't do this to people who don't want it. This is not a violation of free will. Remember, Paul said to the church, it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. But he's only talking to Christians there. Christians are people who want to do the will of God and have otherwise found it difficult to do unless the Holy Spirit enables. The Holy Spirit has to change us and allow us to live the way we really want to live. Now, if someone doesn't want to please God, they're not a Christian. They haven't turned to God yet. They haven't repented of their sinful ways. They're still following their own ways, and they might even claim to be Christians in some cases, but they're not born again. A born-again person is someone who has a new heart that wants to follow God, and that, and the power of God, the Spirit of God in them helps them to do so. So that's how I understand this this prophecy. Not The fact that God says, I'll make you walk in my ways, it doesn't mean I'll force you to against your will. He's speaking about the remnant who actually want to walk in his ways, that he will work a work inside of them that causes them to do so. And we, we spoke to an earlier caller about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and gentleness and so forth. Those are the ways of God, and the Holy Spirit in us works those character traits in us, so that's what we do. We do it because it's part of us. It's part of our inward disposition, as opposed to something that's simply being required of us without our interest in it. So there's no violation of free will suggested here. No one becomes a Christian if they don't want to. But a person who wants to become a Christian, by definition, wants to follow Christ and wants to obey God. And so the Holy Spirit is given and a new heart is given to enable them to do that. That's, that's what I understand uh, to be talked about there in Ezekiel 36. Cindy from Kingston, Washington, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Um, in regards to Jesus um, and the Oliver Discourse and um, giving specifics like stating, uh, pray that your flight wouldn't be in um, on the Sabbath during the winter or um, such, what kind of idea was it that 70 AD took place that, uh, that there was a uh, reprieve in the siege and Josephine went back to Rome and Titus was then sent? What, what season was that that it actually they did uh, exit uh, Jerusalem? Well, we don't know. We don't know the, this time of year that they ended up leaving. We're we're simply told in Eusebius's history that in in the time before the war, that would be before sixty six actually, that the Christians received an oracle that they should flee from Jerusalem, and they did. 
Um, now, whether we don't have details about what time of year that was. We don't have even details about how much information was in the oracle. That, that a, a prophet in the church spoke and told them to flee is, is the summary statement. That prophecy may have included terms about you know, where to go, uh, what time to leave, how much time they had to make the trip or whatever, I mean, or to, before they leave. The, the actual details of the prophecy are, first of all, it's not in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's simply mentioned by a, a Christian historian that they did have that, those instructions and they did leave. But the instructions are summarized very briefly, so we don't know. But um, in all likelihood, if Jesus said to pray that your flight would not be in winter nor on a Sabbath day, then at the time that God told them to flee, if, if they had been praying, as Jesus said, that it would not be so, then, of course, they would probably have, it probably wasn't winter or a Sabbath day when they had to go. Because if Jesus wanted them to pray for that, and if they did, that's probably how it turned out. We don't know anything about the time of year it actually that they actually left Jerusalem. Okay. And then in the, uh, uh, you referred to a Christian historian. So was that Eusebius that uh, you yes. read that about a prophetic? It wasn't in Josephus. So do right. you it's recall Eusebius. What... Okay. Yeah, Eusebius you, is, was yeah Eusebius was contemporary with the Nicene Council in in 325. Uh, AD, mm-hmm. and he was uh, one of the church leaders in Alexandria, and he wrote mm-hmm. a history of the church that's the the earliest surviving history of the church that we have, other than, of course, the book of Acts. Now, Josephus wrote an earlier history, but it was not of the church. It was of the Jews, and though Josephus Correct. mentions Jesus briefly in it, uh, he's not focused on Christ or the church or anything like that. So Eusebius would be our earliest church historian whose works have survived for us. And that's uh, that was the early 300s A.D. And he he's the one who mentioned this. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, Cindy, thank you for your call. God bless you. All right, Joe from Fullerton, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Uh, thank you for taking my call, and thanks for your ministry. Uh-huh. My, my question, uh, Steve, is in line with the tradition that Folks will only follow the King James version. You know, they uh-huh. only. Used. How do how do we minister to that? I'll, I'll take your your answer off the line. Okay, so how do we minister to people who who only accept the King James version? Uh, it we may not be very effective at it because these people are largely brainwashed. They're not thinking rationally, and uh, you know the only way I know to convince somebody is if we can discuss things rationally. And sometimes. Sometimes uh, someone may be a rational person. They may be considering this because someone told them that. I would say you need to point out to them that the Bible existed in and the New Testament existed as the New Testament canon for 1,300 years before the King James Version uh, was made. And therefore, Christians didn't have the King James Version. Uh, they had uh, Latin. They had Greek. They had uh, Syriac. They had, they had translations in many different languages. Uh, before the King James was available. Now, uh, the King James was translated uh, in the 17th century, but it wasn't the first time that the Bible was translated into English. Uh, Tyndale had translated much of it. Wycliffe had translated much of it before the King James Version came along. And even the King James Version as we have it today is not the first edition. The King James Version went through many revisions and uh, actually, if you had a copy of the King James Version that they originally made, you wouldn't be able to read it because the English is so archaic and 
so forth. But it's we have a more a more recent revision of the King James version uh, that that we can buy now, and, and most people have on their shelves. But it's not the it's not the first trans not the first time you know there was an English translation, and there's no reason to believe that it's more absolutely correct than the earlier English translations or the later ones. I mean, it's it's entirely arbitrary to say, as they do, oh God preserved His word, and the King James is that preservation of His word perfectly. Well, how do they know that? I mean, maybe the New American Standard Version is the is God's preserved word. Maybe the English Standard Version is. Maybe the New King James is, which is just another revision of the King James in the long series of revisions of the King James. I mean, for someone to think that the 1611 King James Version is somehow unique in history as being the most perfect translation in English, it's entirely arbitrary. There's not, there's not a reason in the world to believe that. It's just something that, you know, people were raised with the King James. They're fond of the King James. They've memorized the Bible in the King James. They've been told that it's the Word of God from their childhood. And so they just assume that the King James, as they memorize it, must be the, the real Bible. Well, the Bible wasn't written in English originally. And as I said, it took hundreds of years before an English translation was made, over a thousand years, actually. And there were Bibles in different languages before that. So, you know, it'd be very strange to suggest that when people get saved in China or in, a, in Latin America, or in any other country that doesn't speak English, that they have to use the King James Bible. That'd be ridiculous, of course, uh, because they don't even read English. So, you know, and there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that the, the, the King James would be the best of all translations. The Bible doesn't even talk about translations of itself. But we know that what makes a translation good is not that it was made in 1611, but that it was made by good translators who are competent and reverent and uh, honest and the King James translators I believe were all those things but so have been many translators since then and before then so uh, to say the King James is uniquely the word of God is frankly absurd to anyone who knows anything about the history of the Bible and it's it's very much a superstitious view you've been listening to The Narrow Path thanks for joining us we're on daily at this time our website is thenarrowpath.com we're listener supported Go to thenarrowpath.com and see what we have there. God bless you.